always give what you can Even if your allies draw lines in the sand and dig Always dig a little deeper Sometimes it's hard to be my brother's keeper Love, so you let love in Baby, I am home in the wake of your skin And it's crazy how we wear a ceremony Always be open to your path and your journey Yes, she cradles my loneliness A home in a forest nest Universal test Feel the weight of my love Put your hand on my chest and rest In the cradle of my arms The battle that we face is a place where our scars come from And to pick up the gun My love, we are destined to teach these ones To be brave and never run away Courage is birth from the womb on the first light of day Yeah, the day you were born You came out perfect, never meant to be torn In silence, never been so Searching for a certain goal, a pattern of physics, a role. Don't believe I yet told and open. Open up your fist, a misconception. You can fight like this and praise. With the power of prayer of God on our side, we can take the stairs to the heavens. Flipping through my chapter seven, I live with the snakes and the great deception of court. In this country for men who steal from the mother on paper with pen and we're tripping. Down a red dirt road and we're asking Is this the way we should go? Kissing soft our feet Oh my God, this we walk the earth Baby, yeah, we got this focus And it's redirected Grateful and I'm resurrected Stubborn But I know the way You're the skin on my drum to your rhythm I will sway, take my hand Tears in our fears Are the same 
Good morning. My name is Jim Chaston, and my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a member of your Board of Trustees, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to worship this morning at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people, for it is upon their land that we reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, as well as by a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. Much appreciation goes out to our many lay leaders and volunteers whose incredible efforts and dedication keep us connected. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests who are joining us today. We encourage you to fill out the visitor form either online or in the lobby and then connect with others in either the virtual or in-person social hour after the service so we have a chance to meet and welcome you in person. And finally, for those attending in person at the Owen Brown Interface Center this morning, we ask that you take a moment to please silent your cell phones and other electronic devices. I have four announcements this morning in chronological order. First off, this afternoon at 4 o'clock is the monthly Black Lives Matter vigil in Columbia. Please join us to give public witness to the problems of anti-black racism in our neighborhood, our nation, and the world, and to show that all lives will matter when black lives matter. Please bring your own signs if you have them. Second, the Board of Trustees' regular monthly meeting will be this Tuesday, October 12th, at 6.30 via Zoom. Among other topics, we will be discussing the Administrative Limits Report and policy, as well as exploring our open questions that we want to undertake for this year. The agenda and all the materials are posted online at the UUCC website. Please join us. Mark your calendars for our regathering of the stuffed animals. It's happening Saturday and Sunday, October 23rd and 24th. Families are invited to drop off their stuffed animals on Saturday morning, and you can pick them up after the services on Sunday. We look forward to seeing your stuffies, and feel free to dress them for Halloween. And finally, the 42nd UUCC auction is set for this November 13th, and we are seeking your donations for the auction catalog. We invite you to consider hosting a dinner, a game night, or other gathering, either in person or online, and it's also a chance to clear out your quality, good condition items that are ready for a new home, or maybe to show off your UUCC handicrafts. Visit the auction webpage to access the donation form. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paige Getty. My pronouns are she and her, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to welcome all of you to worship this morning, whether you're with us remotely or here in the room. A few housekeeping notes as we begin our service today. For those of you who are here in the sanctuary, if you need a hearing assist device, that is available from the sound booth in the back. And we ask you please not to join the Zoom meeting for the worship service if you're in the, if you're in the sanctuary. You can find the order of service online, either using the link that will be placed in the Zoom chat or using the QR codes that are posted around the building here. Later in the service, about midway through, we will be honoring community members' personal joys and sorrows. So please either write yours in the book at the back of the sanctuary or email them to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. And as Jim mentioned, if you're a guest today, please complete the visitor form either here in the lobby or online so that we can stay in touch with you. And finally, because we have had some questions, I may not keep repeating this, but at least for the next couple weeks, about protocol here in the sanctuary. Everyone will remain masked throughout the entire service except one speaker at a time who may remove their mask if they are vaccinated 
while they're speaking from the chancel. But they're not obligated to do that, so you will see some speakers who keep their masks on, even if they're vaccinated. Thank you to all of the staff and the volunteers, our virtual and in-person hosts and ushers, a fantastic team. Thank you for making worship happen every single week. And this morning, special thanks to the staff worship team of Valerie Shu and Robin Slaw and Michael Adcock, who are all contributing special contributions today. In honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, today in worship, we are all invited to reimagine, reimagine the history that we tell about this land that we call home, this land that is the United States of America, this land that for many of us gathered is the state of Maryland and the county of Howard, the land that for the vast majority, though not all of us, was occupied and colonized by our ancestors in violent and atrocious ways. We are invited to reconsider the stories that have been taught to us about the so-called discovery of this land. We're invited to imagine new ways of living and of remembering and honoring the rightful occupants of this land. This morning, Michael will offer some fodder for all of us to consider as we make choices about the music we use in our UU congregations and elsewhere. Robin will share a story that shines light on the tragic history of residential schools. We'll hear about the work of the Piscataway Conway tribe members who are working to affirm the cultural landscape of the Piscataway people by documenting and raising awareness about multiple places and events that are their people's history here on this land. And Valerie and I will offer reflections inspired by Buffy St. Marie's song, My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying. So take a deep breath. Settle in. Open mind and heart to this reimagining. As we do each time we gather, this morning we light a flame in a chalice. And today we dedicate the flaming chalice with a song, a lament, written and performed in the video we're about to view in the 1960s by Buffy St. Marie. Valerie will tell you a little more about the song and the performer later. But for now, I invite you to listen to this difficult recording it's difficult both because of its sound quality and difficult because of the poignant text. Now that your big eyes are finally opened, now that you're wondering 
how must they feel Meaning them that you've chased across America's movie screens Now that you're wondering How can it be real That the ones you've called colorful, noble and proud In your school propaganda They starve in their splendor You've asked for my comment, I simply will render My country, tis of thy people, you're dying Now that the longhouses breed superstition You force us to send our toddlers away to your schools where they're taught to despise their traditions forbid them their languages then further say that american history really began when columbus set sail out of europe and stress that the nation of leeches that conquered this land are the biggest and bravest and boldest and best and yet where in your history books is the tale of the genocide basic to this country's birth of the preachers who lied how the bill of rights failed how a nation of patriots returned to their earth and where will it tell of the liberty bell as it rang with the thud over kins or mud and the brave uncle sam in alaska this year my country is all thy people you're dying hear how the bargain was made for the west with her shivering children in zero degrees blankets for your land so the treaties attest are well blankets for land is a bargain indeed and the blankets were those uncle sam had collected from smallpox disease dying soldiers that day and the tribes were wiped out and the history books censored a hundred years of your statesmen have felt it's better this way yet a few of the conquered have somehow survived their blood runs the redder though genes have been paled from the grand canyon's caverns to craven sad hills the wounded the losers the robbed sing their tale from Los Angeles County to upstate New York. The white nation fattens while others grow lean. Ah, the tricked and evicted, they know what I mean. My country is of thy people, you're dying. The past it just crumbled the future just threatens our lifeblood is shut up 
in your chemical tanks and now here you come bill of sale in your hand and surprise in your eyes that we're lacking in thanks for the blessings of civilization you've brought us the lessons you've taught us the ruin you've wrought us oh see what our trust in america's bought us my country is all thy people you're dying now that the pride of the sires receives charity now that we're harmless and safe behind laws now that my life's to be known as your heritage now that even the graves have been robbed now that our own chosen way is a novelty hands on our hearts we salute you your victory choke on your blue white and scarlet hypocrisy for you never seen that the eagles of war whose wings lent you glory they were never no more than carrion crows pushed the wrens from their nest stole their eggs changed their story the mocking bird sings it it's all that she knows ah what can i say a powerless few with a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye can't you see that their poverty's profiting you my country is all thy people As you sit with the truth and the power of those words, will you please join together in speaking the covenant that binds us together as a community of faith? Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now you're invited to greet your neighbors, either here in the room or on Zoom. Put yourself in gallery view and you'll be unmuted briefly. Wave at the people on Zoom and the camera in the back. Hi. 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 Hi.
good to see you. Hi, Good morning. When Paige informed me of her intention to plan this worship service, I knew that examining the music of Native American cultures would be something that one could give a series of lectures on, and certainly not just a short reflection. As exploring the musical culture of any group of people, geographic, racial, or ethnic, is not necessarily something could be fairly or respectfully condensed into less than a thousand words. That's more the task and agenda of ethnomusicologists. But I didn't want to miss the opportunity to reflect some upon this music, express some regret about our own denomination's missteps from the past, and share where we are now in our constantly evolving understanding. The traditional music of Native North Americans is primarily a vocal art, either solo or in groups. Typically, it's entirely melodic, with little harmony or polyphony, although sometimes responsorial or antiphonal singing occurs. The melodies are characterized by narrow, descending figures and an irregular rhythm. Pitch and intonation can vary widely as the method of vocal production involves a certain muscular tension in the vocal apparatus, with strong accents and glissandi or sliding between pitches. Singing almost always is accompanied by drumming and occasional wind instruments, mostly in the form of flutes or whistles. Of course, for the Native Americans, songs are traditionally the chief means of communicating with the supernatural, therefore seldom performed for their own sake, but utilized in ritual for specific and definite results, such as bringing rain, curing the sick, or celebrating success in battle. Their traditional songs handed down from generation to generation, ceremonial and or medicine songs received in dreams, but there are also more modern songs that exist, influenced by the influx of European culture. For better or worse, reciprocal participation in collective ceremonies was a big part of Native American cultures, and colonial mixing occurred between the years 1500 to about 1700, as Native Americans borrowed and adapted many European musical instruments and genres through musical interaction. New indigenous musical trends developed in the 1800s as native communities, communities began publishing their own hymnals for use in Christian worship. All of the congregants continued to learn and perform the tunes through an oral and not written tradition. Influences of European string instruments, shaker traditions, ghost dances, and other rituals such as powwows with dance elements continued to promote and broaden indigenous culture, spirituality, and social unity. Today, we have Native American composers who write music in genres from classical to hip-hop, in styles from neo-romantic to electrico-acoustic, and everything in between. These composers' heritages run just as wide as their music, as Chickasaw, Mohican, and Navajo are each quite different cultures under the umbrella term American Indian. Modern-day Native American composers who did not grow up on a reservation also write serious classical music, and I highlight one such composer this morning, J.J. Hollingsworth, in two of my piano selections. Her piece, Under the Blue Dome, depicts scenes from the composer's childhood, the prairies of eastern Colorado. In The Evangelist and the Artifact, 
Hollingsworth composes out an existential drama based on the memory that she had as a young girl. She recalls welcoming a traveling preacher into her home and receiving an arrowhead as a gift that the preacher had found alongside the side of the road. While she turns the arrowhead over and over in her hand, the evangelist speaks about the religion of the prevailing culture, which creates a stark existential juxtaposition. Miss Hollingsworth uses a familiar melody from the Christian hymn, He Leadeth Me. Some of you may recognize, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. And it describes the ironic intention, tension of the encounter. But by the end, the culture of the artifact ultimately obliterates the hymn tune and has the final word. This type of modern compositional writing differs greatly from the so-called Indianist movement of the late 19th, early 20th century, where European-trained American composers borrowed and appropriated elements of Native American music into their own compositions. Surely these composers thought they were respectfully representing Native Americans by writing these Indian character pieces, yet the bulk of them come off sounding like salon music of the 19th century with some passing references to pentatonic themes nothing that could be truly called representative of Native American music. And finally, even enlightened and well-meaning Unitarian Universalists are not immune to misappropriating elements of Native American culture. Some of you old timers may recall a couple of tunes included in both our hymnals, which mimic in an oversimplified manner supposed characteristics of Native American music. This is represented by the use of parallel intervals and fourths and corresponding somewhat embarrassing written lyrics such as heya heya ho. I wince now when I recall us singing those pieces when we were back in our old sanctuary. These types of cultural appropriations are reductive at best and insulting at worst. Luckily, we know better now and are more educated in terms of the history and depth of musical culture, as well to how best honor Native Americans by not extracting Hollywood-like elements of their culture and isolating them from a larger social context. Understanding that many varied and different kinds of musical cultures exist. So today, this morning, in this service, we will listen to the music and voices of Native Americans, and when we sing, will share authentic Native American tunes or contemporary hymns that focus on and respect similar traditions of earth-based society and culture. Thank you, Michael. We are now going to sing a hymn from Singing the Journey, one of our hymnals, that is a traditional Navajo prayer titled Ancient Mother. Will you rise in body or in spirit and let's follow along with Michael who will lead us through singing this twice. Ancient mother, I hear you calling. Ancient mother, I hear your song. Ancient mother, Ancient mother, I taste your tears. Ancient mother, I hear you call. 
Good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Slaw. I'm your Director of Religious Education, and it's so nice to be here with you this morning. So we're about to hear a story, and it's a story written by a member of the Cree people, and it's a true story about his grandmother, who was sent to what we now call a residential school. So this story talks about what happens to the children who were sent to residential schools. They were kidnapped from their families, taken without permission, and when they arrived in the schools, they were forced to speak a language that they didn't know, English. They were punished if they spoke their own language. They were forcibly their hair was forcibly cut, and hair for many indigenous people has tremendous significance. I wouldn't like it if somebody cut my hair without permission. They were made to dress in clothing that didn't reflect their culture, and they weren't even allowed to hang out with their siblings if they were lucky enough to have a sibling at the school. They weren't allowed to see them. They weren't allowed to hug their brother or sister. Wow, that's pretty intense, isn't it? This was done to children in an attempt at something we call assimilation. And assimilation means to be like everyone else. It's not such a great thing when it's forced upon you and you aren't given any choice. It almost worked. Those schools were open until the late 1970s. They started in 1819. That's over 150 years when we were forcibly kidnapping children from indigenous people all over North America and Canada and the United States. And their cultures were completely removed from these children. And so indigenous people today are trying to recover their culture and their language, and they're trying to do it as fast as they can before the last people who still understand culture, who weren't forced into those schools while they're still alive. They're racing time. We also know that lots of children died in those prison camps because they weren't really schools, they were really prison camps. And they, uh, in recent years, both in the United States and in Canada, we've found mass unmarked graves of children who died because the conditions were so horrible in these schools. And here in the United States, our Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, announced a new initiative to investigate Indian boarding schools or prison camps. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, along with denominations of the Christian churches, were really responsible for those boarding school practices. I think they have a lot to answer for, but we haven't answered for it yet. 
So as you listen and watch the story, which will be up on the screen, if you're a parent, I want you to think about what that would be like to have your children ripped from your arms and maybe never see them again or get them back a decade or two later and have them be unrecognizable, you not even able to speak to them because they no longer understand your language. And if you're a child, imagine what that would be like if you were the ages you are now and someone came and grabbed you and took you away from your mommy, your daddy, your guardian. It would be hard, It'd be really hard. So let's watch the story. When We Were written by David A. Robertson and illustrated by Julie Flett. Today I helped my cucum in their flower garden. She always wears colorful clothes. It's like she dresses in rainbows. When she bent down to prune some of the flowers, I couldn't even see her because she blended in with them. She was like a chameleon. Nukum, why do you wear so many colors? I asked. Nukum said, well, Nusisum. When I was your age, at home in my community, my friends and I wore many different colors. But at the school I went to, far away from home, they gave us different clothes to wear. All the children dressed the same, and our clothes weren't colorful at all. We all mixed together like storm clouds. Why did you have to dress like that? I asked. They didn't like that we wore such beautiful colors, Newcomb said. They wanted us to look like everybody else. But sometimes in the fall, when we were alone, and the leaves had turned to their warm autumn hues, we would roll around on the ground. We would pile the leaves over the clothes they had given us, and we would be colorful again. And this made us happy. Now, Newcomb said, I always wear the most beautiful colors. After I helped with the flowers, we went over to the back gate. There were vines covering the gate and they reached all the way to the ground. When my cucum turned to fix the latch, I saw that her braid hung almost as low as the vines. It was like she had a tail. Newcomb, why do you wear your hair so long? I asked. Newcomb said, well, Nusisum. When I was your age, at home in my community, my friends and I grew our hair long just like our people have always done. It made us feel strong and proud. But at the school I went to, far away from home, they cut off all our hair. Our strands of hair mixed together in the ground like blades of dead grass. Why did you have to wear your hair like that? I asked. They didn't like that we were proud, Newcomb said. They wanted us to be like everybody else. But sometimes in the spring, when we were alone and the grass had grown so long and thick in the field, we would pick the blades from the ground. We would braid them into the short hair they had given us and we would have long hair again. And this made us happy. Now, Newcomb said, I always wear my hair very long. After my cucum had fixed the latch, I followed her to the birdhouse. There was a bird flying through the air like a jingle dress dancer. She fed the bird and whispered, Napinesis, Michiso, Tamisikatingan, Tamiskayasian, which means, here little bird, eat, so you will get big and strong. And her words sounded just like a poem. Newcomb, why do you speak in Cree? I asked. Newcomb said, well, Nusisum. When I was your age, at home in my community, my friends and I always spoke our language. But at the school I went to, far away from home, they wouldn't let us speak our words. All the children used their strange words, and we didn't understand them at all. Our voices blended together like a flock of crows. Why did you have to talk in their language? I asked. They didn't like that we spoke our language, Newcomb said. 
They wanted us to talk like everybody else. But sometimes in the summer, when we were alone and our teachers weren't anywhere around the place we were, we would whisper to each other in Cree. We would say all the words we weren't allowed to say so that we wouldn't forget them. And this made us happy. Now, Newcomb said, I always speak my language. After our gardening work was done, I sat with my Kukum in the backyard. Her brother came over and sat with us. He comes over all the time. We drank tea and ate bannock. The tea was hot and sweet and the bannock was moist and warm and melted in my mouth. My Kukum and my uncle talked and laughed like children. Nukum, why do you and Nokomis always spend time together? I asked. Nukum said, well, Nusism. When we were your age, at home in our community, being with family was the most important thing. We played with each other, did chores together, and shared everything. But at the school I went to, far away from home, they wouldn't let us be together. My brother and I were separated like day and night. Why were you and Nokomis separated? I asked. They didn't like when we were with family, Nukum said, because when we were together, we thought too much of home. But sometimes in the winter, when we were alone, and we were sure that nobody could see us, we would find each other. We would take off our mitts, and in the crisp, cold air, we would hold hands so we could be with each other. And this made us happy. Now, Nukum said, as she reached over and held my uncle's hand and mine, I am always with my family. These are important stories for us to know and to learn more about. So if you're watching on Zoom, there will be a, a link posted in the chat, and I'll make sure that link also goes up on the worship page for today, with a list of books, 48 books, recommended to you, both children and adults, to learn more about residential schools and the impact on our indigenous communities. This is a gentle introduction for the sake of the children who are here today watching or in person. I urge those of you who are older, whether middle school or high school or adult, to pick up one of those books and read some more. So I wonder, is this a new story for you? I wonder, who else might you share this story with? Thank you. Oh, children, we have one more uh, piece to listen to, and then we're going to gather in that back corner back there to go on to RE outside. And parents, I'm just going to warn you because rain is, looks like it's imminent. If it does start raining, we're bringing the kids back in because we don't have a room for them to be in. Thank you, Robin. Today is the second Sunday of the month, and as is our custom, we are going to be accepting contributions for a special organization in our community. Today, our, our contributions are going to support a project called Through Piscataway Eyes, and this video will introduce you to that project. Hello, I am Lucille Walker. I am the Executive Director of the Southern Maryland Heritage Area publicly known as Destination Southern Maryland. I was asked to say a few words to you today regarding the Piscataway Kanoi tribe. I myself am not native, but I come to you with a deep respect for the indigenous people and traditions of this region. Our heritage area includes Calvert, Charles, and St. Mary's counties, 
We are one of 13 heritage areas in the state of Maryland. One of the pillars of why our region is vital to the heritage of Maryland and really to the nation is the survival and legacy of the first people of this land, the Piscataway. The Piscataway, which roughly translates into where the waters meet, were the largest and most powerful tribal nation in the land between the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River in the early 1600s, with indigenous people having lived within this area for 12,000 years until the European colonists arrived in 1634. Within a mere span of 80 years or so, much of their land and later their way of life which was displaced. Continual enroachment on their traditional territories caused devastation to the tribe. However, the Piscataway story is one of survival against all odds. When it became unsafe to be Indian, they went underground or emigrated out west. During the 1960s, the tribe began to reemerge and claim their regional heritage and in 2012, they were recognized by the state of Maryland. In 2016, the Piscataway Kanoi tribe completed a master plan called Through Piscataway Eyes to guide them into the future. It is with pleasure that my office is one of the entities to assist with this. A quote from the master plan uh, by Francis Gray, tribal chair. We, the Piscataway people, have always known who we are where we are from and where we have lived then and today. The grateful efforts and respect of today's archeology span community and new discoveries of our places connected with our oral history confirm our Piscataway people. It is these places that my elders have remembered for centuries and it is now time for all Marylanders to share our memories. I thank you. For your interest, unquote, I thank you for your interest in the native people of this land and in contributing to their efforts outlined in Through Piscataway Eyes. Donations to the tribe will be used to implement key elements laid out within that plan, including educational opportunities and land preservation. Ultimately, this is a story of the human spirit, and we are so grateful that you are interested in this and are part of this and have asked me to speak today. Thank you. And with thanks to Lucille and thank you to Michael, who's going to offer one of the pieces that he described to us already by J.J. Hollingsworth. Thank you for your generosity. Your offerings will now be freely given and very gratefully received, either online with the instructions that will appear on the screen or in the basket at the back of the sanctuary.
Again, from my country, tis of thy people you're dying. Now that the longhouses breed superstition, you force us to send our toddlers away to your schools where they're taught to despise their traditions. Forbid them their languages, then further say that American history really began when Columbus set sail out of Europe. Then stress that the nation of leeches that conquered this land are the biggest and bravest and boldest and best. And yet where in your history books is the tale of the genocides basic to this country's birth? Of the preachers who lied? How the Bill of Rights failed? how a nation of patriots returned to their earth. And where does it tell of the starvation hell as the children were herded and raped and converted? And how do we rescue the missing and murdered? And yet a few of the conquered have somehow survived. Their blood runs the redder through genes, though genes have paled. From the Grand Canyon's caverns to Craven's sad hills, the wounded, the losers, the robbed sing their tale. From Los Angeles County to upstate New York, the white nation fattens while others grow lean. Oh, the tricked and evicted, they know what I mean. My country, tis of thee. My country, tis of thy people. You're dying. This morning, the text that dedicated our chalice lighting and that you just heard part of from Reverend Page was the song, The Lament, My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying by Buffy St. Marie, an indigenous Canadian-American singer, songwriter, activist, artist, educator of Cree descent. Writes Buffy St. Marie, this song is Indian 101 for people who've been denied the real history of how indigenous people in North America got to be in the tragic states of affairs most suffer today, poor health, domestic insecurity, and poverty. I wrote it in the 1960s before people used the word genocide or acknowledged the indigenous Holocaust of the Americas or the horror of residential schools. So here we are, UUCC, most of us on Piscataway land today, a fact we verbally acknowledge every Sunday morning on this observance of Indigenous Peoples Day. Now that our big eyes are finally opened, so the song goes, now that we're wondering, how must they feel? We observe Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday formerly known as Columbus Day, a testament to the genocide basic to this country's birth. But this observance feels funny to me. Are we repackaging a legacy of evil in a tidy box to salve the tender egos of our woke personas? Are we claiming awareness and attention because it's the cool thing to do when we as a community have failed to do anything beyond verbal land acknowledgement to date? Buffy St. Marie writes, now that my life's to be known as your heritage, now that our own sacred way is your novelty, 
Is a genocidal heritage a reason, an excuse to continue to take the second Monday in October off from our jobs, perhaps from our schools? Our schools, those places where we are taught that American history really began when Columbus set sail out of Europe. Schools where we're taught that the nation of leeches that conquered this land are the biggest and bravest and boldest and best. We take this Monday off work because of the government-sanctioned and religiously endorsed massacre of 100 million lives that permits you and me and our congregation and our children to dwell on this land. Yet, where in our history books is the tale of the complete obliteration through invasion, conquest, and colonization of hundreds of nations with their own cultures, governments, languages, economies, technologies? Whole Indian nations have melted away like snowballs in the sun before the white man's advance, said Cherokee chief C.U. Kinsini, also known as Dragging Canoe in 1775. They leave scarcely a name of our people except those wrongly recorded by their destroyers. Where in our history books is the tale of the ongoing human rights crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in North America, where groups like the Native Women's Association of Canada estimate as many as 4,000 women have been murdered between 1980 and 2012, the vast majority of cases not properly investigated due to police bias, and where indigenous women are three and a half times more likely to be victims of violent crime. Writes journalist Jessica McDiarmid, not nearly enough people gave a damn when these girls and women went missing. We did not protect them. We failed them. The police haven't solved these cases, but there are multiple perpetrators. There are those who committed these crimes and there are all of us who stood by as it happened and happened again and happened again. How do we rescue the missing and murdered? Where in our history books is the tale of the preachers who lied? As the horrific legacy of residential schools across the continent enters mainstream discourse, we cannot overlook the function of religion in their spread and longevity. In 1872, as the Board of Indian Commissioners launched the residential school system in the United States, 73 permits were granted to religious organizations, among them our Unitarian forefathers. The mission of these religious boarding schools was to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man, based on the false belief that white Western religious practices were the sole source of salvation and supremacy, a belief validated by papal decree, upheld in the doctrine of discovery, and codified by the Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, himself a Unitarian, declared, as infidels, heathens, and savages, they, the Indians, were not allowed to possess the prerogatives belonging to absolute sovereign and independent nations. Our Unitarian missionaries attempted to convert the Chippewa and Ojibwa in the region now called Minnesota and the Utes near White River, Colorado. Unitarian efforts found a foothold with the Montana Industrial School for Indians, or Bond's Mission School, led by the Reverend and Mrs. Henry F. Bond. 
Fifty Cree children at a time were held at the school, their languages, customs, and families stolen from them. So they could be taught farming, mechanics, and the domestic sciences by nice, white, Unitarian liberals. And yet, where in our history books is the continued tale of farcical attempts to educate Native children today? Our government, the one we elected, transformed the residential school system into the Bureau of Indian Education, which today enrolls 46,000 Native students primarily on reservations, the only education option in many rural communities, and continues to let Native families down. Overseen by the Department of Interior rather than the Department of Education, the Bureau of Indian Education produces some of the lowest academic results in the country and has allowed school buildings to go years in disrepair. The Bureau neglects to respond year after year to repeated warnings about their failures to meet federal education standards and to provide adequate special education services. Says parent Carletta Lee of Navajo Nation in the year 2020 about her child's Bureau-operated school. I put a lot of trust in the school. I put trust in the school that they were going to be providing the services, that they knew what they were doing. When I look back at the time, I'm like, wow, I really was stupid to trust them. The tribes were wiped out and the history books censored, sings Buffy St. Marie. A hundred years of your statesmen have felt it's better this way. We are perhaps the only nation which tried as a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population, noted the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Moreover, we elevated that tragic experience into a noble crusade. We wrote the story of the noble crusade when we began the story with secondly. During our September 26th worship service titled Stories Uniting, Reverend Page shared this excerpt from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's renowned TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. The Palestinian poet Murid Barghouti writes that, if you want to dispossess a people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with, secondly, Start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British, and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with Columbus, and you have literally and figuratively massacred millions. Instant ethnocide and instant genocide. Total erasure in one single word. Start the story with European conquerors and countless centuries of, of civilization and sovereignty and spirituality and scholarship cease to exist, smothered by our small-minded, self-righteous sensibilities. This is how the white nation fattens while others grow lean. Oh, the tricked and evicted, they know what I mean. And yet, where should our history books begin? Is this observance of Indigenous Peoples Day an attempt to start with firstly? How narcissistic are we to imagine that we can place ourselves at the beginning of any story, to imagine that any story begins with me? Rather than seek the beginning, what if we seek current action? The Latin phrase in media res 
describes a narrative practice in which the story opens in the middle of the action. The curtains rise, and the quarrel between Achilles and Argamemnon grows heated. The curtains rise, and Donna Anna chases Don Giovanni out of the garden, and Thanos boards Thor's ship. The curtains rise, and the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia struggles to decide, collectively and individually, how to utilize our resources, time, and energy to confess, to reckon, and to atone for our continued dwelling on stolen land, for the legacy of our Unitarian forebearers, for our sins of commission and omission against the rights, humanity, and inherent worth of Native peoples. We arrive in media res, and the story continues. Thank you, Valerie. As we hold all that has been shared this morning, I invite you now into a time of silence. No words of prayer today, but rather shared quiet and stillness as we hold all of these prayers. Blessed be. Amen.
The past, it just crumbled. The future just threatens. Our lifeblood is shut up in your papers and banks, and now here you come. Bill of sale in your hand and surprise in your eyes that we're lacking in thanks for the blessings of civilization you've brought us, the lessons you've taught us, the ruin you've wrought us. Oh, see what our trust in America's bought us. Now that the rivers are dumps for your chemicals, now that the forests are dead like the moon, now that my life's to be known as your heritage, now that even the graves have been robbed, now that our own sacred way is your novelty. Hands on our hearts, we salute you, your victory. Choke on your blue, white, and scarlet hypocrisy. Pity your blindness, how you never see that the eagles of war, whose wings lend you glory, are never no more than buzzards and crows. Push some wrens from their nest, steal their eggs, change their story. The mockingbird sings it, it's all that she knows. All, what could I do, say a privileged few, with a power, with a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye? Can't you see that their poverty's profiting you? My country, tis of thy people, you're dying. So much of what we do here in religious community is intended to strengthen our conviction about how to live faithfully in the world. How to be faithful to the gifts the earth provides for our well-being. How to be faithful to one another. How to be faithful to the truth. The truth of what has shaped our world and how our individual experience is limited in revealing the whole of that truth. How to be faithful to the values of love and justice and compassion. The history of people on this continent is beautiful and brutal. A beautiful story of people born from and on this land, living humbly and faithfully, honoring the sanctity of the land. A brutal story of people arriving on the shores, arrogantly and violently claiming it as their own, writing a history centering themselves as heroes, a history still taught to our children as if it is the truth, the whole truth. As ones who are committed to living faithfully, we are compelled to remember with humility and honesty to look back and accept the greater truths of that history, to lament its brutality. And we are compelled to actively reimagine a better future. If you are like me, you recall with embarrassment and maybe even some shame the days when you played the game of cowboys and Indians, in which the Indians were always villains. The days when you celebrated the courageous and adventuresome Christopher Columbus and the sturdy, resilient colonists. The days when you dressed yourself or your children in Indian costumes for Halloween or school pageants. There was a time when those choices were arguably innocent, when we didn't know they were inappropriate, offensive, degrading, dishonest. But we know better now. 
And when we know better, we are compelled to do better. In a 1973 essay on the reasons for my involvement in the peace movement, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. It became clear to me, he said, that while our eyes are witness to the callousness and cruelty of man, our heart tries to obliterate the memories, to calm the nerves, and to silence our conscience. And the more deeply immersed I became in the thinking of the prophets, he wrote, the more powerfully it became clear to me what the lives of the prophet sought, prophets sought to convey. That morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. It also became clear to me that in regard to cruelties committed in the name of a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. No one in this gathering today is directly guilty for the actions of their ancestors. But everyone is responsible for their own part in the way forward for acknowledging the truth of the past, for not denying the very real benefits and privileges with which we live, benefits that are a direct result of that brutal history. And we are responsible for contributing to reconciliation and repair. As Valerie said, we arrive in media race and the story continues. What do reparations look like? What policy decisions are needed to restore some justice to those whose ancestors were indigenous? How do we make choices individually and as institutions and as a society that do not perpetuate the brutality and continue to re-traumatize the native peoples of this land? Too often in our shame, we avoid such questions, shut down the conversations, defend our own innocence about not having done anything wrong. But our individual innocence and our shame is of no help to those among us who continue to suffer because of events preceding their births and policies and practices that reinforce and perpetuate the harm. The song says, the eagles of war whose wings lend you glory are never more than buzzards and crows. Push the wrens from their nest, steal their eggs, change their story. Ah, oh, what could I do, say a powerful few, with a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye? Can't you see that their poverty's profiting you? You and I, Nearly all of us gathered today occupy stolen land. Meanwhile, the descendants of the rightful occupants of this land continue to live in poverty, too often silenced and overlooked or dismissed by those with the power to actually change something. I don't have all the answers today about how properly to atone and to repair but I do know that the way forward begins first with humility, with asking the right questions, and with seeking guidance from those who know better than I 
the ones who are experts because it's their life we're talking about. So that's my wish for us today, that we will let go of our defensiveness and shame and begin truly to reimagine a better way forward. Because only some may be guilty, but all of us are now responsible. Amen. Michael, let's sing verses one and two only of winds be still. You're invited to join in singing and to rise in body or in spirit. for worshiping with us today. Um, I invite you to stay after the service to listen to our postlude music selection, which is My Country Tis of Thy People, You're Dying, revised and re-recorded by Buffy St. Marie in 2017. We close our time together today with a few lines from the poem Becoming Human by Acoma Pueblo Indian poet Simon J. Ortiz. We are given permission by the responsibility we accept and carry out. Nothing more, nothing less. People are not born. They are made when they become human beings within ritual, tradition, purpose, responsibility. Therefore, as humans, this we do. Sun Father begins red in the east, stand and be humble. Red through trees, moments changing each instant into the next change, each change tied to the next. To be human is to have a sense of being within self. May we go forth this week accepting responsibility, carrying out responsibility, changing each moment into the next change, acting on that change, and thus becoming human. Blessed be. Now your big eyes are finally open. Now that you're wondering how must they feel.
Meaning them that you've chased across Canada's movie screens. Now that you're wondering, how can it be real? That the ones you've called colorful, noble, and proud in your school propaganda, they starve in their splendor. You ask for our comment, I simply will render. Thy country tis all thy people, you're dying. Now that the longhouses breed superstition, you force us to send our children away to your schools where they're taught to despise their traditions, forbid them their languages, then further say that Canada's history really began. When explorers set sail out of Europe and stress that the nations of leeches who conquered these lands were the biggest and bravest and boldest and best. And yet where in your history books is the tale of the genocide basic to this country's birth of the preachers who lied and the people who died. How a nation of patriots returned to their earth. And where does it tell of the starvation hell? As the children were herded and raped and converted. And how do we comfort the missing and murdered? My country, tis all thy people, you're dying. Few of the conquered have somehow survived. Their blood runs the redder, though genes have been paled. From Arctic and Nuvik to Niagara Falls, the wounded, the losers, the robbed sing their tale. And from Vancouver Island to the Labrador Sea, the white nations fattened while others grew lean. Ah, oh, the tricked and evicted, they know what I mean. My country, tis all thy people, you're dying. The past, it just crumbled. The future just threatens. Our lifeblood is shot up in your papers and banks. And now here you come, bill of sale in your hand, and surprise in your eyes that we're lacking in thanks for the blessings of civilization you've brought us, the lessons you've taught us, the ruin you've wrought us. So I see when our trust in our Canada got us. My country is all thy people, you're dying. Now that the pride of the sires needs charity, now that we're harmless and safe behind laws, now that my life's to be known as your heritage, 
peace have been robbed Now that our own chosen way is your novelty Hands on our hearts, we salute you, your victory Choke on your true white and scarlet hypocrisy Pity your blindness, oh why can't you see How the eagles of war, whose wings lend you glory Are never no more than buzzards and crows Push some wrens from their nests, stole their eggs, changed their story. The mockingbird sings it, it's all that she knows. Ah, what could I do, say the privileged few? With a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye, can't you see that their poverty is profiting you? My country is of thy people.